Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today I'm proud to announce a new sponsor that I'm absolutely thrilled to work with, Dark Sword Armory. DarkSwordArmory.com makes the toughest hand-forged medieval swords on the market, and right now you can get free shipping when you use promo code NOAH when you buy your medieval sword from DarkSwordArmory.com. Again, do be sure to use the promo code NOAH when buying your hand-forged medieval sword from DarkSwordArmory.com. If you enjoy the History of Vikings, then do be sure to write me a review as I would love to hear your feedback. You can also feel free to contact me anytime. My email is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Joining me today is a very special man, the world's leading scholar on Viking berserkers. He's an archaeologist, PhD in Viking studies, and author of two books, The Viking Experience and Vikings, Raids, Culture, Legacy. From the University of Nottingham, Mr. Roderick Dale. Roderick, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. The topic of our discussion today, and I'm just so excited to get into this, is Viking berserkers. And of course, uh, you're a PhD in Viking studies, and you wrote your dissertation on Viking berserkers, which I have a copy of, and I'll put a link to in the description below. And as I was reading that, I was just so fascinated. You've just taken so much information out there and compiled it into one concise document, which is so fascinating. And reading much of your dissertation, I was I was shocked as to how many misconceptions that I had about the Viking berserkers. Now, before we get into those misconceptions, where do we get our knowledge of Viking berserkers from? Where do we first hear of these shield-biting, um, frothing-at-the-mouth, howling madmen from? The first place that we actually hear about the Viking berserks is uh, a poem called Haraldskvæði, or Hrafnsmál, which means Harold's poem or the raven's talk. And the poem is a conversation between a raven and a valkyrie about the Battle of Hofsfjord, which took place in Norway, just southwest of Stavanger, at the end of the 9th century. Uh, traditionally, it's been dated to about 872, but in reality, we don't actually have an exact date. And the poem has two mentions of berserks, of berserkir, berserks, and two mentions of ulfhethnar, or wolfskins. In the first of them, we just hear Grenyithu Berserkir Guthur Vastem Ausinum Emyithu Ulfhethnar Ok Isarnduthu. The berserkers bellowed, battle was about to begin. Wolfskins wailed and waved weapons. So we immediately are introduced to an idea there of berserks as men who are integral to battle. And then the second reference in the poem is later on, where the they ask about how the berserks are outfitted and then it's then it follows with and the wolfskins carry bloody shields so it's relating the two together uh and again we have this image of warriors strong warriors from it and then later on uh, we find references to berserks in the uh, sagas of the Icelanders and in the King's sagas, which are the histories of the Norwegian kings. So there are core sources, uh, a couple of mentions from the Viking Age, and then the rest of it all comes from the medieval period, two, three hundred years later. So, you know, you mentioned the 
two of the sagas, and I suppose this is sort of more of a, a general question, but when talking about the Norse sagas, I mean, of course, Valkyries and, and talking ravens, that's not really a, a thing, but how do we separate fact from fiction in the sagas? I mean, are they a reliable source, would you say, when studying uh, Vikings and, and Viking heroes? Are they a reliable piece of literature? They tell us what the medieval people believed or wanted to believe about their past. I tend to think of them, and it's a position that uh, was quite criticised when Joseph Harris wrote about it, but I tend to think of them as historical fiction. So they have roots in the past, but it's been embellished. Um, in terms of analysing fact from fiction, we really need to treat it as literature, analyse the sagas as literature, but we can compare the evidence from the sagas with archaeological evidence where it exists and find elements that uh, correspond. But at other times we find descriptions that are quite clearly of medieval archaeology, as it were. So I'm just going to say it's complicated, really, but yeah. it, employs, it requires a lot of critical thinking. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Now, when talking about the Viking berserkers, you know, you mentioned kind of where we get um, our knowledge of them from, and certainly howling madmen, uh, biting their shields, foaming at the mouth, um, you know, going berserk, just these, you know, whipping themselves up into a frenzy, these um, men who had the strength of, of bears and bulls. Now, that seems to me like it, it could be a very over-exaggerated uh, description of the actual Viking berserker. Is that true, or who were the real Viking berserkers, based on the actual uh, historical evidence that is reliable that we have? The, well, you mentioned them being madders, dogs, or wolves. Yeah. That's substantially a quote from Snorri Sturluson, the 13th century Icelandic historian, who describes them as men who went without armor and were as mad as dogs or wolves. I'm of the opinion that this is hyperbole. This is meant to make them appear ferocious. It's not a literal description. When analyzing the sagas, I came to the conclusion that there was a more interesting and more nuanced interpretation to apply to the Viking Age material, uh, which when we look at the sagas, we see a lot of berserks who fight duels, and we see a lot of berserks who are in king's war bands, and we even see, find the occasional one who was formerly a great berserk, which is interesting in its own right, considering that the popular idea is that being a berserk is something intrinsic to one's nature. So, but some of the sagas are suggesting that, in fact, it's, some, it's a job you could walk away from, as it were. And for me, the dueling and being part of a king's or lord's bodyguard are the key elements here. So it suggests that they were champions in the same sense that Lancelot was a champion of King Arthur or Roland was a champion of Charlemagne. Yeah, interesting. Now, oh, there's just there's so much to talk about, and I know there's a lot of, like I mentioned earlier, just misconceptions and, and debate surrounding uh, the Viking berserker. Um, but before we get in that, I mean, 
I think it would be fair to say that probably the English word that is the most Old Norse sounding in nature would be the word berserk, uh, the word used to describe when a person goes into a sort of frenzy and is, um, you know, acting quite wildly and, and out of control and is experiencing some some rage. So is that word indeed borrowed from the the Old Norse? Like, what is the sort of etymology of the word berserker? And what's the difference of the noun berserker and then the action of going berserk in Old Norse? Um, well, the modern English word is derived from the Old Norse word, and it has come to mean frenzy, as you say. The Old Norse word berserker basically has two etymologies. One means not wearing anything over one's shirt, i.e. bare shirt, and the other means wearing a bearskin shirt. The etymologies are contested in some ways. Some people prefer one over the other, but in the end, I don't think that we have the evidence to support one strongly enough to throw the other out. And I have occasionally thought that perhaps both could apply simultaneously in different places or at different times in the history of berserks. So it might mean going without armor, or it might mean if you take Serker as a, um, as a male shirt, a male coat, it might mean wearing a bearskin instead of the normal armor. So either way, we can't really say too much about the etymology other than that. For me, what's more important is actually finding out the meaning. Now, another sort of rumor that um, has been you know, going around for quite some time is that um, Viking, or yes, that Viking berserkers were under the influence of, of some sort of um, a mushroom in that they were in under the influence of this mushroom that induced this trans-like state, uh, which they were, you know, able to have this unimaginable strength and go into this wild frenzy. And, you know, I just remember growing up playing some of the old um, Total War games, which uh, a lot of people are familiar with. And when I would play, um, you know, Rome Total War, the the berserkers of uh, Germania faction were just so overpowered and one unit of, of 12 men could take on a, a Roman legion. It was just insane. But where do we get this theory from, uh, this idea of um, mushrooms inducing this trans-like state? The mushroom theory comes from a Swedish theologian called Samuel Erdman, who wrote a uh, short article in 1784 about uh, suggesting that berserks actually took Ammonita muscaria, the fly agaric mushroom. And he'd based that on his observations of Siberian shamanic practice. But he wasn't the first person actually to look for uh, a root cause for berserkskanger, uh, what's usually called the berserker fit or frenzy, although the etymology of that word doesn't actually support that uh, translation. It means more the movement of the berserker. And one day I'm going to get everybody calling it the berserker strut, <laughs> because that'd just be hilarious. <laughs> but what we find with this is... People have looked at the sagas, they've looked at the sagas of the Icelanders, and they've seen these guys biting their shields and howling, and they've thought, that's really odd, why are they doing that? Yeah. And back in the 17th century, 
when the Scandinavians were looking to their past for a sense of identity and when they're rediscovering the old literature, they thought, oh, right, okay, well, the old gods are obviously the devil. They interpreted it in their own uh, religious context with the with Odin being the devil uh, opposed directly to God. And then they looked at um, Snorri Sturluson saying that berserks were Odin's men, and they went, oh, well, it must be black magic then. And since that point, uh, since the point where they decided that Berserkskanga must be some kind of black magic, each generation has reinterpreted the word to suit itself and to suit the concerns of its time. So in the 17th century, you get uh, black magic. In the 18th century, in the rise of um, the Age of Reason, you get Samuel Erdman saying, oh, well, it could be mushrooms. Um, and moving on through in the early 20th century with um, the rise of Freud and Jung and other psychologists, you start to get psychological explanations. And then unsurprisingly, in the 50s and early 60s, the uh, mushroom theory became popular again. So each time people have looked at it, they've gone, they've asked themselves, how did berserks go berserk? And nobody's really ever questioned whether they went berserk or not, because pattern was set so far back, it's become fossilized in the scholarship. Hey guys, before we hear more from Roderick, I wanted to take a brief moment to hear a quick word from our sponsor today. So if you're a sword collector, you've probably heard of Dark Sword Armory. Dark Sword Armory is a Canadian company making medieval swords that are individually hand-forged to look, feel, and handle like the originals. While finding quality swords online can be a challenge, DarkSwordArmory.com is one of the few manufacturers that individually recreates their swords from the museum originals while using the finest materials. Dark Sword Armory has been around for 20 years and are known to produce some of the most durable swords on the market today. I've seen them destroy cinder blocks, bricks, and 4x4 beams. If you're looking for an authentic and beautifully crafted sword that is built to last, I highly recommend DarkSwordArmory.com. Get free shipping when you use promo code NOAH. Use promo code NOAH so that they know who sent you and save up to $40 in shipping. So if it's not mushrooms or perhaps even alcohol, which I know you touch on in your thesis that's inducing this sort of frenzy that these berserkers go into what is it then is it just is it the work of snorri sturtleson or, or others just over dramatizing uh their actions and trying to make it into a good story and a good oral history or you know like what is it then what is it that makes these berserkers go berserk well i think there's an element of making them monstrous and socially disruptive in the uh sagas that you know there's a literary element to it but what i've argued for in terms of a viking age context is that they were champions and that they would have been part of a king's bodyguard and that they would have fought duels on behalf of that king and and that berserkskanger the berserker fit was probably posturing like Amari Hucker, like the All Blacks doing a Hucker before the um before a rugby match, 
It's a form of posturing that has potentially ritual significance. It may be designed to get the gods on their side before the battle, and it may be designed in the same way that sports people go through various routines to psych themselves up for the event. It may be designed to bolster their courage. It may have had some kind of magico-religious significance, be some kind of a spell to take them into battle safely and bring them home again, and to demoralize the opponents. And I think that what we need to do here is actually separate our interpretation of what we think's going on in the Viking Age from what we're seeing in the sagas. We need essentially two different models of what's going on there. But certainly from a Viking Age perspective, I see, I see it as posturing. And if you imagine see, watching the All Blacks before a rugby match doing the haka, and then how a saga author might have described that, they're there, they stamp their feet, they're slapping their thighs, they're gurning horribly. Um, imagine how outlandish this might appear in the kind of sparse text that we get in an Icelandic saga. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and that totally, that's um, sort of a, a way of taunting their opponent. But I, I know in another one of the sagas that we have, the berserkers are mentioned as uh, being the warriors of Odin. Does that uh, title, Warriors of Odin, have any significance? I mean, um, any relation to sort of the the Einherjar, the elite warriors of Valhalla, or or is that title just sort of irrelevant? It's a difficult connection to make. Uh, it's quite possible that the people that were berserks were high-status warriors in King's Halls, and therefore the types of people who might make it to Valhalla, which is a heaven for the social elite. It's not the only hall where the dead go in Norse myth. Uh, There's half a dozen others that are named in the various sources that we have. But Valhalla is where all the kings go when they die. Uh, So the Einherjar might well be a dead version of Berserkir, of Berserks. But in terms of them being warriors of Odin, I think that they are only warriors of Odin in the sense that they fight battles and Odin has um, dominion over the, the battles and who falls in battle. They're not warriors of Odin in the sense of being a religious brotherhood in any kind of sense that we would understand that now. So what is the significance of Berserker? Uh, in in Norse literature, like, is there any similarities between berserkers in Norse literature and in Norse history, and that of the literature of other cultures? Do we see any sort of relationship between the characteristics seen in berserkers uh, to other war bands or or groups of elite warriors in in other literature? People often look to old Irish literature, and especially Cucullan, and try to make connections with his warp spasm, as it's sometimes called, and um, berserks. Unfortunately for that connection, um, the warp spasm interpretation is contested as well, in the same way that I contest that berserkskanger does not mean literally going berserk. Uh, So 
that connection is made. In other medieval literatures, we don't really get the same descriptions, perhaps because they're written in a more Christian context. So we don't see the rituals like biting the shield and howling um, recreated in other medieval literatures at all. Uh, in that respect, they're quite unique to the Old Norse material. On the other hand, we do see in Old Norse literature use of the word berserk to translate, for example, Old French champion, uh, the Old French word for champion. And that's actually used in Yvain's saga, which is a translation of Yvain, the Knight of the Lion, Chrétien de Troyes' work, and it's used to describe Yvain's lion, the two uh, people that he's going to attack, that Yvain's going to attack are quite scared that the lion will fight as Yvain's berserk, his champion, because they don't think they can stand against it. And that's really important for understanding what the medieval meaning is and therefore feeds back into how we understand the Viking Age. Uh, so in these translations, we get an idea, but we don't see quite the same attributes in other literatures. Mm. Yeah, that that's very interesting, and that that makes sense. I think it's always interesting when looking at, at literature and and different histories and uh, cultures and religions to always compare and, and contrast. But my last question to you is sort of one more about Vikings in general. You know, you mentioned we talked earlier about the mushroom theory that was developed in the 1700s, and when I first heard of that theory and I first read about it and discovered the theologian behind it uh, whilst reading your thesis, I thought it was really interesting and sort of random that that of all times was to come up during the 1700s. I always thought that was more of a modern concept, but uh, you mentioned that it was because the uh, Scandinavians were kind of looking to find themselves and uh, discover their identity by looking to the past and rediscovering the Old Norse literature. Now, I'm curious, we do see throughout history this sort of trend of Vikings growing in popularity and then sort of declining in popularity and growing and declining. Certainly, the Victorians were very fascinated with the Vikings, but right now we're experiencing a time where the Vikings are more popular than ever. I mean, um, a lot of that has to do with pop culture and uh, the TV show, certainly, and there's other uh, sources of media covering it, but do you think we're experiencing a, a sort of fad right now, or is is the popularity of Vikings here to stay? Like I know if you look at other time periods in history, uh, World War II or the American Civil War, perhaps uh, because those conflicts were so massive, they'll always be popular. And if it is a fad, or or if it's here to stay, why do you think it is so popular? Uh, Vikings are popular because they're infinitely malleable. Basically, they were picked up in the 19th century uh, and used by practically every Western European country as part of the whole building of the nation-state's identity. Uh, for the English, for example, Vikings would be stout yeomen standing in the prows of their ships, sailing off into the unknown for, for adventure and exploration and to conquer new lands. Um, and they continue to be used in many different ways 
in advertising, commercially, um, to, as I say, malleable stereotype or archetype that can be turned to almost anything. We, we know that the Vikings did sail to new lands and plundered them and conquered them and settled in them. We know that they composed poetry, they told stories, um, they washed every Saturday, they combed their hair, they wore makeup. Um, all of these different attributes can be used. And what people are doing all the time is just picking out bits and pieces that suit them. So, for example, there's a uh, brand of underwear called Viking with the rather dodgy um, advertising of slogan, slogan, something like Feel the Viking Inside, wow. I think it is. Uh, <laughs> and then you have um, Viking safety equipment for ships because Vikings sailed everywhere and they got places, so your life rafts are Viking branded. Or there are so many different ways Vikings are used in the commercial world just because they can be. They have the ability to be turned to everything and anything. So I think that their popularity will probably endure and will continue to change in how it's focused. Um, and it, But every time I think we've reached peak Viking, actually, it just notches up a little bit further on the scale. No, I would have to agree with you. I think I think you're right. And certainly that malleable uh, aspect to it as well. I think that's uh, fascinating. And uh, it's very heartwarming in a way, because uh, I've been fascinated with the Viking Age, and I really uh, love that time period of history. But uh, Ron Rickdale, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I've been wanting to get you on the show for quite some time, and I'm just, uh, it was such an honor talking with you. But, you know, I'll put a link to your two books in the description below, as well as your thesis. But um, is there anywhere else that, that people can find you, perhaps uh, social media or anything of the sort? I'm on Twitter as at Berserkia blog. So you can find me on Twitter. That's the main place to find me. All right. Yeah, sounds good. And I'll be sure to put a link uh, in the description below. Uh, again, Roderick, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, you're certainly welcome back anytime, but thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the History of Vikings, do be sure to write me a review. You can always feel free to contact me. My email is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Thank you all so much for listening today. Do join us next week right here on the History of Vikings. Music